How's everyone? Good? <laughs> Good. Okay. We're going to uh, continue with the series that we've been uh, working through for the past few weeks. Um, tonight we're going to talk about can the image of God be redeemed? Can the image of God be renewed? Um, and so they're passing out those handouts there. If you, if that's something that you like and that you find helpful, then uh, use that. If it's not, then uh, then don't feel obligated to at all. Um, but just as a reminder, uh, the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, we were talking about the question, um, what is the image of God? And we talked a lot about how the Bible doesn't really ever say what the image of God is. It says that we are uh, created in God's image, uh, Adam and Eve were, and and by extension, the rest of humanity are, are created in God's image. Um, but the Bible never really explicitly lays out what that, what that means. And there have been lots of different suggestions of, of what it means, and some that are very, very specific, and others that are more, more general. And so what I offered is, um, is just a, a very general, very, very simple thing that it means, kind of two things. One thing is it means that, that we're like God, in, in some ways, um, and we could talk more about, about how we're like God, and we did on that first Sunday, um, but we're like God, and then also we were created to represent God, and we talked some about that on that first Sunday, about what that, what that means and the ways that we represent God, but we, are, we were create, created to be like him and to, um, and to represent him, okay? I skipped over that number one on your sheet if you're following along and you're filling things out. Number one is that um, humanity is part of creation and distinct from the rest of creation. So we're a part of creation just like everything else. Uh, there's kind of two categories of, of existence um, in, in the world. The one is, is the creator, God, and the other is the creation or the created. Um, and so God is the only, uh, is the only member of that, of that first set, creator, um, and everything else that exists besides God uh, came into existence because of him and through him and, and by him. So God is a creator. We are creatures. We are created. Um, and, and, so, and so we're part of the rest of creation. And yet we're distinct from the rest of creation in, in certain ways as well. God created us differently than he created the rest of creation. Remember we talked about that, how God spoke everything into existence. And then when it came time to create Adam, it says uh, using using anthropomorphisms and, and some uh, uh, figurative language, it says that God uh, took the, the dust of the earth and formed it into a man. Um, it says he, that God breathed life into Adam, uh, making him a, a living being or living spirit. And so we're, we're part of creation, but we're distinct from the rest of creation as, as well. Um, and we have uh, specific roles within creation that the other parts of creation do not have. And, and even in some ways, the rest of creation... Um, was created to glorify God just like us, but also the rest of creation was, was in some ways created for us um, to provide for our needs. Food, um, air, the, the plants and trees produce oxygen for us to breathe. Um, and, and, and so we are a, a special part of creation. So humanity is part of creation and distinct from the rest of creation. We are like God and we represent God. Okay. Last week we talked about sin, how does sin affect uh, the image of God, 
And we talked about some different options. Some people uh, believe or have believed and, and still do today believe that when Adam and Eve fell in, into sin in Genesis chapter 3, that the image of God was completely destroyed. It was completely um, annihilated. And, and, and yet the Bible seems to say that the image carries on. We looked at several passages last week um, uh, of how even after the fall, um, people are, are referred to as in the image uh, of God. And so what we said last week was that sin um, does not destroy the image of God, but sin does distort the image of God. Sin distorts the image of God. And so we talked about like a Picasso painting, and how if you look at a, at a Picasso painting of, of a person, um, you can probably tell that it's supposed to be a person, but it hopefully doesn't look like any specific person that you've ever met, right? Because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's distorted, it's, it's messed up. And he has reasons for, for painting that way and things that he's trying to represent, but it doesn't look like a, an actual person that, that we've ever met before. We can still tell that it is a person. I gave the, the uh, illustration last week of, of like a funhouse. You go into a funhouse and there's all these different mirrors there and some of the mirrors are, are set up in a way that make, make you look really short and wide and others are, are set up to make you look very tall and, and, and thin. And so those are, are reflections of you. They look like you and they are you. They are a reflection of you, but they're not a realistic reflection of you. It's a distorted uh, image of you, a distorted reflection of you. And so that's how sin affects the image of God. We're still made in God's image. We still are the image of, of God. There are still ways that we are like God, um, and, and, and yet um, those things are distorted. Um, tonight we want to talk about um, can the image of God be redeemed? Can the image of God be redeemed? That, that image is, is distorted. Can it be uh, repaired? Can it be renewed? Can it be uh, made back into God's image? And so Let's dive in here. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's, let's dive in. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be flipping uh, several different places tonight. We'll start out, though, in Genesis chapter 3. And so the first thing I want to say about the redemption of the image of God is that it was planned from the beginning. It was planned from the beginning. God has planned to redeem us from the very beginning, okay? From the moment Adam and Eve fell into Sin in the garden, God had a plan to um, undo what they had done, okay? And I don't want to get too, too very controversial tonight, but um, even before Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, God had a plan of how he was going to rescue us. Even Adam and Eve sinning was not a surprise to God. He knew that was coming, and again, I don't want to get too controversial, but, it, but we could even say that, that he, had, he had planned that in some ways. He had planned for them to fall in, into sin, and we could talk about that more later, but God had a plan from the very beginning of how he was going to redeem them from sin. So look at chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Look at verses 14 and 15. And so in this specific passage, Adam and Eve have already sinned. They've already eaten, eaten from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. God comes to the, to the garden. He begins to call out to them. Remember, they're hiding in the garden. He, he calls out to them, where are they? Um, they're, they're hiding, and then they answer, and God says, have you... Uh, they, they said that we were naked and afraid. God says, who told you you were afraid? And Adam blamed Eve. And then he said, he blamed God. He said, the woman that you gave me, uh, she gave me the fruit and I ate from it. Then he turned to Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. And then he turned to the serpent and the serpent had no one to blame. Um, and so God then begins to lay out what the consequences of this action is going to be. And so we get to verses 14 and 15. And in these two verses, he's talking here to the serpent. He's talking about what the consequences of this sin is going to be for the serpent. But he says in verse 14, 
Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you shall strike his heel. Okay? We don't have a lot of time tonight to get into um, a huge detail of, of what this means, but sometimes this, this verse is called the, the Proto-Evangelium, which is a big fancy way of saying the first gospel. This is the first hint of the gospel in, in the Bible. And here God is promising that he's going to undo what's happened in the fall. So he talked about the serpent. He said there's going to be this hostility between the serpent and the woman. But not only, only that, he said there's going to be hostility between the serpent's seed or the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And so if we think about the serpent as Satan, what is the, what is the offspring of Satan? What is it that Satan produces? Well, he produces sin. He produces death. He produces um, hostility. He produces these, these, these things that, that, that Satan uh, produces, right? And so he says there's going to be hostility between the, the serpent and the woman, but there's also going to be hostility between what the serpent produces, sin, death, those kind of things, and what the woman produces, and if we think about the Bible, think about the story of the Bible, where in the Bible do we see um, an offspring of a woman? And hopefully one of the things that comes to your mind pretty quickly is Jesus, right? Jesus is the, the son of, of uh, Mary. He didn't have a, an earthly father, but he had an earthly mother. And so here we see a prophecy where God's promising that, that there's going to be this, this hostility between the, the woman and the, and the serpent, between humanity and, and Satan, um, but there's going to come a day in, in the future where he says the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. And the offspring of the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman. And we think about that happening on the cross, right? Satan attacked Jesus on the cross. It was, uh, it was um, not pleasant. It was, uh, it was a, a bad thing. And yet if we think about someone getting injured in the, in the foot, that's a, that's a bad thing. Some of y'all have, have feet injuries right now. It's hard to get around. It's inconvenient, that kind of thing. But most people don't die from being injured in the foot. Most people don't die from having a broken toe or, or something like that, right? But if we think about a head wound, head wounds often are, are fatal, right? And so here's the prophecy where, where Satan is going to come against Jesus and there's going to be some difficulty there. Um, but it's not going to produce death, at least not a lasting death. Jesus defeated death, overcame death. And yet he says that, that, that Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. So here at the very beginning of, of, um, of Genesis, right after the, the fall, as soon as the fall happens, God already is announcing a plan to undo um, the effects of, of the fall. And then if we skip down to verse 22, chapter 3, verse 22, I remind you there was a second tree in the garden that was named. There were lots of trees, lots of plants in the garden, but two of the trees had names, right? One was uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were commanded not to eat from that tree. But there was another tree in the garden with a name. It was the tree of life, right? And so listen to, to chap chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the, the cherubim, which is the, a type of angel, and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So, so one of the things that God did after they fell into sin was he, he kicked them out of the garden. He, he drove them out of the garden, it says. 
And, and obviously that's an act of judgment because um, in the garden they had all the things they needed for life. God had given them um, a, a paradise basically for them to live in. And so he's removing them from that. He's, he's uh, driving them out of that. And now they're going to live in the wilderness. And we're told that the ground's going to fight against uh, Adam. We didn't read that part, but he's going to try to, it's going to be hard to, to get food. He's going to have to cultivate the ground and the weeds and the thorns are going to, going to fight against him. So there's, a, there's, there's an aspect of judgment here being kicked out of the garden. But I think there's also an aspect of mercy here being kicked out of the garden. Because it says specifically the reason they're kicked out of the garden and, and even the reason that this angel is put there with this flaming sword so they can't get back in is to prevent them from taking from the tree of life, right? Now, why would God not want them to take from the tree of life? Because if they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever. But they would live forever in this fallen, sinful state that they find themselves in. And, and that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to redeem them, right? The tree of life, if you don't know, the tree of life comes up again in Revelation chapter 22, the, the very end of the Bible. It's here at the very beginning of the Bible, and it's again at the very end of the Bible. And in the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, people are taking from the tree of life, and people are eating from the tree of life. It says it bears uh, 12 kinds of fruit, a different fruit each month. And it says that the, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, and yet that's after the redeeming work that God has done. And so there is a day when we will be eating from the tree of life, and we will have eternal life, but we'll have eternal life in a redeemed state, not in our not in our fallen state. So from the very beginning, uh, God had a plan to redeem people, and, and part of what that means is to redeem the image of God in us, okay? Um, the, the second little bullet point there on your sheet is that this plan that God had from the very beginning was developed throughout the Old Testament. We see this plan being developed throughout the Old Testament. We see pieces of it coming together throughout the Old Testament. And we don't have a lot of time to, uh, to read a lot of different passages here, but just think about some of the, some of the things that happened in, in the Old Testament. Think of, think of some of the ways that God uh, reveals himself in the Old Testament. If, if we're going to say, you know, Adam and Eve were created to be like God and be in the image of God, if I ask you, if you think to the Old Testament, can you think of a, of a person or an institution that was to be like God and was to represent God, what would come to mind? For some of you, maybe the nation of Israel would come to mind, right? God chose Abraham, and God chose his, his descendants to be a, uh, a nation to represent him, a nation to be like him. Um, in, in fact, in many places, we're, we're shown different ways that Israel is to be different and distinct from all the other nations around them because they're to reflect God. They're to be like God. Even, even something as, as mundane and seemingly kind of confusing as not, ha not wearing clothes with mixed fabrics. It's, it's a way to show that God's purity. It's a way to show that God's holiness. And it's a way for them to be different than the other, other nations around them. And so God uses the nation of Israel to, um, to represent himself and to, uh, to, to, um, to image himself, to, to show an image of himself. He, he uses the prophets for this very reason. He reveals himself to the prophets. And so the prophets become his spokespeople, his spokesmen. And so they represent God to the people of Israel and to the other nations around them. We think of, of David, King David, and, and some of the other kings, but specifically King David, who was called a man after God's own heart. And he was to rule over the nation of Israel on God's behalf, in God's place. And so we think through the Old Testament, and there are these, these institutions and these, um, 
these these people, um, offices that are that are that are to reveal God, to represent God, to be like God, um, in a way that Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And yet, just like Adam and Eve, if we if we study that very closely in the Old Testament, we see that all of those different um, institutions are imperfect. Israel was supposed to be like God and supposed to represent God. And, and be different from the other nations, and yet what we see happen all, over and over and over is they become more and more like the other nations. Um, David was a man after God's own heart, but we know his life well from the scriptures, and we know that he wasn't a perfect um, follower of God. He wasn't a perfect representative of God. He wasn't a perfect king um, for the people of Israel. And, and the same thing with the prophets. The prophets revealed God, um, and, and yet the, the people didn't listen to the prophets, and they often killed the prophets, and, and the prophets themselves weren't, weren't perfect either. And so all through the Old Testament, we have these different, Im- these different shadows of, uh, of an image of God, a shadow of a representative of God, of a, of, of, of a person or, a, or an office that's to be like God. And yet we also, all through the Old Testament, have this, this longing, this anticipation, even in some specific places, these promises of a better representative that's going to come, a better king, a better prophet, um, a better representative of, of God. So this is planned from the beginning, it's developed throughout the Old Testament, and then the, the third bullet point there, it's revealed in the New Testament. It's revealed in, in, in the New Testament. So turn with me, to, if you would, to the New Testament. Let's look at, um, let's look at the Gospel of John, a couple different places there, but, but first of all, chapter 1. John chapter 1, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. No one's ever seen God, but now as Jesus comes, as Jesus takes on humanity, is born in the flesh, becomes uh, a baby, becomes a, a person here on earth, a human here on earth, no one's ever seen God before, but now Jesus is the, the representative of God, the, the, the image of God, the likeness of God. He is God. And so no one has seen God before, but now we can look to Jesus and we can see God. The same way that way back at creation, the goal was for people to look at Adam and Eve and see a representation of God. Now people can look at Jesus and see a perfect representation of of God. We see something similar in in John chapter 14. If you want to flip there, you can. If you want to just listen, that's fine too. But in John chapter 14, um, verse 9 or verse 8, Philip, one of, one of Jesus' followers, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus' response in, in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And Jesus says, if, you, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to see God, look at, look at me, and I, I, I am God. I'm revealing God. I'm, I'm, I'm imaging God to you, to you right now. And so we see this in, in, in Jesus's life. And then there's two uh, very clear places in, um, in the New Testament. The first one is Colossians chapter one, where we get kind of a commentary on what's going on in Jesus' life. And, and, and Paul tells us um, exactly what's happening here. He explains to us exactly what's happening in Colossians chapter one. In verse 15, he's talking about Jesus here. And he says, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Just as Adam was the original image of God, Adam and Eve were the original images of God, that, and that image was distorted in, in sin, now Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the representative of, 
of God. And then in, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, a, a passage you may be familiar with, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. So back in the Old Testament times, long ago God represented himself and revealed himself through the prophets. Verse 2 says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And he says, the son, in verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word and making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Adam and Eve were an expression of God's nature. They were created in God's likeness. Even before they sinned, they were created in God's likeness, but they weren't perfectly like God, right? They were, they were like God in, in many ways, but they weren't like God in every way. And here we see Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews says is God's, uh, a picture of God's exact nature. He's like God in every way. He's a better image even than Adam and Eve were before the fall. And so we see this, this, this image being, uh, we don't see it necessarily being redeemed yet in, in fallen people, but we see it being revealed more clearly through history, right? Even think about some of the places where Jesus, where God in the Old Testament calls different institutions his son, right? Adam is a son of God. David is a son of God. Israel is a son of God. But here now Jesus is the perfect son of God, the, the, the total son of God, the complete son of God. So it's revealed in the New Testament. And then the, the fourth bullet point on your sheet um, is a question. How is it that the image of God is, re is redeemed? How is it that the image of God is renewed? And so I want us to look at a, at a couple of things. First of all, you're in Hebrews. Turn back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. I'll start in verse 5. This is a passage that, that Josh preached on just a couple of weeks ago, this hymn, this, this poem that's in Philippians 2. It says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man, in his external form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And it, and it goes on from there. But how is it that God's redeeming? So God's revealing himself perfectly in Jesus, but, but how is it that God's doing the redeeming work, the renewing work of, of taking us who have this distorted image and, and, and redeeming it, changing it back into uh, the true image? Well, the first step in that is that he sent Jesus, who is his image, who is perfectly the image of God, he sent Jesus to take on our image. He, took Jesus, he sent Jesus to become what, what we are. Last week, Curtis and I were talking afterwards, and, and Curtis was talking about how the image, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, how that image was marred, how that image was messed up, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Jesus is the perfect image of God, the, the complete, the total image of God. But what Philippians says is that Jesus came and took on a marred image. He took on our image. He was, he was born into the likeness of, of, of men, into the likeness of of us. Even more explicitly, Romans chapter 8 says this. I, I wrote this down because I liked it in the English Standard Version a little bit better than, than the version I'm reading right now. But listen to Romans 8, verse 3. 
He says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God sent Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, to take on the likeness of sinful flesh. To take on the image of sinful flesh. So, so we were supposed to be like God, and we messed that up. And so how is God redeeming that? Well, the first step in how he's redeeming it is he's becoming like us. We're supposed to be like him, but we're unable to, to, to make ourselves like him. Once, once that image is, is distorted, we're unable to fix it, right? Think about um, some of you, this may have happened to you before. Think, think of someone who has locked their keys in their car. And there's different ways to try to get those out, but maybe you've tried to take a, a metal clothes hanger and and you know, a twist it, off, twist it open and straighten it out and try to get it just right and then make a little crack in the door and get it down in there and, and, and try to get the, the lock opened like that. Maybe you've gotten it to work before. But when you've finished, have you ever been able to take the clothes hanger and bend it back into the shape it was supposed to be in before you messed it up? Well, God, God has done that. God has done that. But the first step in him doing that was he took on our, our image. He took on our distortion. He took on our our mess, that he might put an end to that and then recreate us. In Romans chapter 8, a little bit later, Josh read this passage to begin the service tonight. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is the passage that's familiar to many of us. He says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he predestine us for? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We think of salvation as God forgiving us for our sins, and, and salvation absolutely is God forgiving us for our sins, but that's not the only thing that salvation is. Salvation is, is forgiving us of our sins, but salvation is also recreating us into what God would have us to be, making us into who he wants us to be. And, and he's predestined from the very beginning. The plan was to make us into the image of Jesus. We were, we were created in God's image. We messed that up. Jesus is the perfect image of God. So if we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that means we're predestined to be conformed back to the, the rightful, true image of God that we were created to be to begin with. Okay, so quickly, how, do, how, do we, how does God do this? That's, that's, that's what he's wanting to do. That, that's the plan. That's the purpose he has for us. So how does he do this? Well, first of all, number one on your sheet, first of all, he does this through us putting on Christ. He does this through us putting on Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If we're believers, if we're trusting in Jesus and, and the Lord has saved us, then we have put Christ onto ourselves. We're no longer look like us, we're to look like Jesus. And that's a, not, a, not, a, not an all at once kind of thing, not a perfect kind of thing, but it is, um, it, it is a true thing. We're putting on Christ. In, in Romans chapter 13, I'll turn there because I'm already there. Romans chapter 13 in verse uh, 14, Paul writes this. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. So the first step in us being remolded, recreated, renewed, redeemed in, into the image of God is that we put on Christ. We take off our flesh. We take off our sin. We take off um, those, those things, and we put on Christ. The second thing we do, number, number two, is uh, the way that God does this in us is we rely on one another. 
We rely on one another in the church. Rely on one another in the church. How is it that God takes that hanger and bends it back into the rightful, the rightful shape so that it can be used for what it was supposed to be used for? Well, we put on Christ, number one. We have to have the, the, the mold, the standard, to, to bend it back into the, the shape, the pattern of what it's supposed to look like when it's done. And then the way that he does it is he, he, we, we're to use one another. Look, look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. Paul says, And he personally gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here's why, verse 12. For the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking truth and love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. God, God has gifted his church. He's gifted us with evangelists, with pastors, with teachers, with uh, prophets, with apostles, with, we could even add to that list, with, with servants, with deacons. With, we could go through all this, the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gifts his church with. And, and, and the purpose is that we would all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. What does it mean to be a, a mature follower of Christ? It means that we measure up to the stature of Christ. We measure up to, uh, to what Jesus is. And so what does it mean to be someone who's mature in Christ? It means someone who is imaging God, someone who is like God, someone who represents God here on earth. So, so we do it by putting on Christ. We do it by relying on one another in the church. And then number three, we do it by relying on God. Relying on God and, and working ourselves. Relying on God and working ourselves. Turn, if you would, to Jude. And we'll end here in this passage. That first Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 that's on your sheet, that's a, a benediction. It's the end of the, of the letter to the Thessalonian church that Paul's writing. And in there, he's praying for them. In, in that benediction, he prays for them. And he prays um, that God would sanctify them completely. Think of sanctifying completely, being redeemed, renewed, made back into that image that we were created in. Think of that as taking that hanger and, and bending it back into the, the, the shape that it's supposed to be in from the very beginning. And, and he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, he prays that God would do it. It's a work that God does. We rely on God to do it. And yet in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 that's there, Paul says, let us purify ourselves. And so it's something that we trust God to do, but it's also something where we have responsibility. We, we work as God works. Look at Jude. In Jude verse 1, he says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. So in Jude verse 1, who is it that's keeping us? Jesus Christ, right? God is, is keeping us. But look down to verse 21. Verse 21, or verse 20, 
He says, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray, the holy, pray in the Holy Spirit, notice you're building yourselves up there. Verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Jude verse 1, he says that the Lord is keeping us. The Lord Jesus is keeping us. Jude 21, he says, keep yourselves. And look at verse 24. Verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Um, in, in other translations, that verse 24 is um, not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So in Jude verse 1, the Lord Jesus keeps us. In Jude verse 21, we're to keep ourselves. In Jude verse 24, um, God is, is, is the one who is able to keep us. And, and so how does this happen? It happens as we work relying on God to work. Remember the passage that, that Josh preached on last week from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and, and 13. It's that passage we know where he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's something we're to do, right? Work it out with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who's at work in you. And so how is it that this image is, is renewed? How is it that we become like Christ? How is it that we become like God? Well, we work for that. We work for that but we work for it knowing that it's the Lord working in us. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit enabling us. It's the Holy Spirit calling us even to want to work for that to begin with, and the Holy Spirit enabling us to do, to do that work. One of, my, uh, one of my favorite hymns, I've quoted this before, one of my favorite hymns is Joy to the World, right? And, and we Baptists have a, have a bad habit of, of skipping verses sometimes. Um, in fact, I remember at chapel one time when I was in college, the... Um, the, our college president, Dr. Dr. David Dockery, was preaching in chapel, and um, and he was singing. We were singing one of the songs. I forget which one it was, um, but uh, but I remember we sang all four verses. And he got up and he said, he the music leader said, "Thank you for for leading us through all four verses." And he said, "My my conviction is that for the first thousand years in heaven, all the Baptists are going to have to be over in the corner singing the third verses of all the hymns that we've that we've skipped so much because that's kind of our our habit." But this, this, this verse in Joy to the World is verse 3 that we don't sing very often, but listen to it. It says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Right? Sometimes we think of salvation as being God forgiving us from our sins, and that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. But that's just one aspect of salvation, one part of salvation. What, what God is doing in salvation is he's changing us. He, he, he's taking us from this distorted, messed up, sinful person, and he's redeeming us, renewing us, recreating us into the image of himself. He's making us like himself. He's making us like Jesus. Um, salvation is, is taking everything, even go back to that Genesis 3 passage we read at the very beginning, where he talks about the, the seed of the woman coming and the seed of the serpent there. And what's happening in Genesis 3.15 is that Jesus is going to come. The, the seed of the woman is going to come. And when he does, he's going to reverse everything that sin has done. He's going to change all the things that, 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 that sin has happened. There's a, there's a, I don't know it well enough to, to quote it right off, but there's a, there's a scene in one of the Lord, Lord of the Rings movies, if some of y'all are Lord of the Rings fans, there's a scene in one of those movies where um, I think it's Samwise Ganji, the, the, the friend of, of Frodo, is talking to the wizard Gandalf, I think it is, um, and he says something to, to the effect of, um, is every sad thing going to come untrue? 
and it's part of the plot of, of, of the movie, and if you know the movie, then that makes more sense to you, but is every sad thing going to come untrue? And that's really the truth of the gospel. The work of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world and the work of Jesus on the cross is he's redeeming us and he's redeeming the world. And all sad things, all bad things, all sinful things are going to come untrue. And there's a day when that will be perfected in us. There's a day when that will be perfected in the world where we will be true images of God, pure representatives of God on the new heavens and new earth. And we long for that day to come. Um, we're quite a bit over time. Sorry about that. But um, I do want to take just a few minutes if there are thoughts, questions, comments. Patrick? I think it was both. I think it was an act of judgment, but I think it was also an act of mercy, both. And, and, and just to caution you just a little bit, the, the Bible, I can't point you to a, to a verse that says that, right? The Bible doesn't explicitly say that. That's, that's a deduction that I'm making from that passage. And I, and I could be wrong about that, but I, but I don't think so. That's, when I read that passage, that's, I see God's judgment and I see God's mercy there also. But I, just, but I want to be careful. The, the Bible doesn't, just like the Bible doesn't say explicitly what the image of God is, we can make some deductions and, and, and come up with some ideas, the, the same thing there in, in that passage. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I think uh, I think we should be realistic, right? And so, um, you know, Martin, Martin Luther said that we are at the same time sinners and saints, right? At the same time, sinners and saints. And so, if if we're believers in Christ, well, let's start off. If we're not believers in Christ, someone who's not a believer in Jesus, who is who is 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 not saved, a lost person um, out on the street. That person is special because that person is made in God's image, right? We, we're all created in God's image. And so no matter how bad the person might mean, no matter what the person might be involved in, might be doing, whatever, whatever we could think of, and, and we can talk about some of these things more specifically next week when we talk about some of the implications, but, but every single person that we ever come in contact with is, has dignity and has worth and has value because they're created in God's image. And even if that image is distorted, it's still there. Um, for the believer, we're, that's true of us. We're, we're made in God's image. We're created that way, um, and we're created for the purpose of 
uh, displaying God and representing God. Um, and then we have the, the, extra, the extra part of it, I guess, where, where that image is being redeemed in us, right? But it is being redeemed. It's not, it's not fully redeemed yet. It's being redeemed. And so I think as believers, we should, we should be humble and we should say, you know what? Yes, we're, 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 we have value and we have worth and we have dignity and, and, and life is important and life matters and, 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 and we, can, we can be secure in the love of God, the love of Christ, that he is our father, that he has made himself our father. And at the same time, we can also be humble and be realistic and say, you know what? We're not perfect children. God's made us his father. He's, he's done that for us and, and yet we still have, um, we still have work to, to be done in, in us. And, and that helps us, I think, as, as a church. It ought to help us as a church because um, when we're offended by one another, our first, our, our first uh, thought should be, I'm, I'm more offensive than I'm offended, you know? Um, if, if someone sins against me, my first thought should be, that's expected. And my first thought should be, I've sinned against them probably worse than they've sinned against me. And so I should be slow to be offended by, by one another, and we should be quick to forgive one another, um, and, and when we are offended, then, then there's a way to deal with that. The scriptures tell us how to deal with that. And, and so it's not, yeah, well, I'll just say that. Yeah, we have a hope, but we're a work in progress. There's a, there's a goal and we're guaranteed to meet that goal and we know the outcome's going to be there, but we're not there, we're not there yet. No. And, 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 and going back to the, to the, part of the people that are not, not saved, that means people that we, would con, that we would sometimes be tempted to consider as enemies of the church, those people are also created in God's image. You know, we could, we could talk a lot, and, and we'll probably talk some next week about abortion and, and how one of, the, one of the reasons that abortion is such a big issue is because those, those children, those babies that are being aborted, that are being killed, are created in God's image, right? But that whole issue gets really complicated because those babies are, are created in God's image, and so we want to work as, as believers and as citizens and as people. We want to, to work to end that. But we also need to be sensitive of how we work to end that because the mothers are also created in God's image. And there's a reason that they feel like they're in a position to where they need to do that. And so we should try to, try to, try to end that practice, but we should also try to be compassionate and, 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 and minister to the, to the mothers as well, Right? I'm not at all saying that, that abortion's okay. Abortion is evil and wrong and, and, all, and all those things. But the, the mother of the children that are being aborted, are, they're not enemies. They're also created in God's image, and they also have dignity and worth, and we should try to reach out and, and help them and meet their needs. And even to take it a step even further than that, the doctors who are performing the abortions are also people created in, in God's image who also need to be redeemed and who also need to be um, have the gospel shared with them and need to be loved and need to be um, given, given mercy toward and, 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 and all those. And, and that gets really complicated and, and, and really difficult. And, and we could think about probably a million issues other than just abortion. But everybody that's involved in that situation is, were created to be like God and to represent God and to be image bearers of God. And, and, and because of that, they have worth and dignity and value and, and we should approach them and think of them and, and treat them and, and act toward them in, in that way with that, with that in light.
hope everybody understands what I'm saying there, that abortion is evil, wicked, totally. Um, but, but we should love people, all people. Anything else? Any other questions? All right, well, thank you all for being here tonight. Next week, we're going to talk about a lot of those issues like abortion and, and other, other things and how, how does being created in God's image and sin affecting that and redemption affecting that, how does that all play into how we should think about some of those issues that are going on in our, in our world today. Thank you all.